This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia. This is episode number nine. Today we are continuing our series with Dr. Daryl G. Hart, teaching about J. Gresham Machen at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Today's lesson is titled, The Fight Against False Optimism. Well, we are in this series on Machen, and um, we have been looking at the theme of uh, Machen, the fighter of the good fight, and we've been looking at some dates in Machen's, uh, pivotal dates in Machen's life. Of course, as a reminder, Machen was born in 1881, lived until 1937, and several weeks ago we covered 1919 and his uh, involvement in World War One as a YMCA secretary. A couple weeks ago, we looked at 1920 and the uh, ecumenism and the plan of uh, organic union. Last week, we looked at, in 1923, the publication of Christianity and liberalism and the, uh, his argument against liberalism as a different religion there. And today, I want to look at the pivotal year of 1925, um, and maybe get a different marker if I'm going to use, put anything more on the board. Um, 1925, which was uh, a very important year, and, um, and I'll explain why. It may have been the most important year in the Presbyterian controversy. And to that end, I have uh, handouts some uh, outline as well as some juicy quotations um, from, the, from the wrong side, but uh, <clears throat> so um, I want to back up a little bit and uh, look again uh, at some events leading up to 1925. Um, from, from one angle, from the angle I tried to emphasize, uh, the, the Presbyterian controversy started in 1920 with the plan of organic union. And uh, I tried to argue that Machen's book, Christian Liberalism, was very much set in the context of the plan for organic union and what that represented for Ecumenism and the social gospel and the way that liberalism, in many respects, was um, an outgrowth of the social gospel and ecumenism. But technically speaking, the, um, the controversy in the Presbyterian Church begins with, uh, in 1922, in New York City, and if I think I've said this before in lessons, but anything that comes out of New York or north, uh, north of Princeton is not good in the Pres- in Presbyterian Church. Um, it, just, it, just, it just works out that way, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, maybe the 21st century. Um, so the controversy begins with the Fosdick Sermon. The Fosdick Sermon refers to a, uh, a sermon that Harry Emerson Fosdick preached on... Um, May 21st, 1922, um, at 
11.35 a.m. In, I don't know. Uh, in the morning. Um, but Harry Emerson Fosdick, how many people know that name, remember that name? Okay. So at one point, if you were American Protestant, probably up until at least 1960, if not beyond, you would have known Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was, he was probably the most, uh, the most popular preacher in America, especially in mainline circles. His dates are uh, 1878 to, to 1969. He was a contemporary of Machen's. Um, he came from New York, Buffalo particularly, and was educated at Union Seminary. Uh, Union Seminary in New York City, and Union was the foremost uh, liberal seminary in the Presbyterian Church, so liberal that in the 1890s, in the aftermath of the Briggs controversy, uh, Charles Briggs was an Old Testament professor who made arguments somewhat similar to those made by a certain Old Testament professor who used to teach across the street. But anyway, there was a controversy not unlike that at Union, um, and that led to several trials against Briggs, and uh, Briggs was eventually repudiated by the Presbyterian Church. Union Seminary, which had been an, institute, an agency of the Presbyterian Church, declared its independence from the Presbyterian Church in order so that it could still be a Presbyterian seminary in an independent way. So there was a precedent for Westminster Seminary as an independent Presbyterian seminary, and the precedent came from liberals, of all things. So... Um, so when, when eventually when people gave Westminster a hard time for being an independent Presbyterian seminary, they didn't seem to be giving Union Seminary a hard time for being an independent Presbyterian seminary. So, so Fosdick went to Union, and in um, I'm not sure when he started, but he was a stated supply. He was a Baptist, I should say that too. Ba- he, was a, he was an American Baptist. He, uh, even though he'd gone to Union Seminary, he was still in the Baptist church. He'd he'd grown up a Baptist, but um, in the early 1920s, he became the stated supply of First Presbyterian Church in New York City. So a a Presbyterian church is calling a Baptist to be its stated supply. So, you know, there's a little bit of a problem there, perhaps. Um, So Fosdick Fosdick preaches this sermon on, um, on Shall the Fundamentalists Win, with, in many respects, the Baptist controversy in mind. Baptists were actually already using the word fundamentalist in their controversies, both in the, among the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists. And I really think that, that Fosdick had that Baptist controversy in mind because fo- Presbyterians weren't using the word fundamentalist, not even, I don't think, through the controversy, really. So, so Fosdick was actually preaching to a Presbyterian congregation about something going on in the Baptist church. And he preaches a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And let me, uh, I have some excerpts here. You can see um, the first element uh, that quotation begins that is necessary. This is for this controversy to be avoided or abated. Is necessary as a spirit, a spirit of tolerance and Christian liberty. When will the world learn that intolerance solves no problems? This is not a lesson which the fundamentalists alone need to learn. The liberals also need to learn it, speaking as I do from the viewpoint of liberal opinions. 
Let me say that if some young, fresh mind here this morning is holding new ideas, has fought his way through, it may be by intellectual and spiritual struggle to novel positions and is tempted to be intolerant about old opinions, offensively to condescend to those who hold them and to be harsh in judgment on them. He may well remember that people who held these, those opinions have given the world some of the noblest character and the most memorable service that it ever has been blessed with. I'm not sure rememberable is a word, but anyway. And that we of the younger generation will prove our case best, not by controversial intolerance, but by, by producing with our new opinions something of the depth and strength, nobility, and beauty of character that in other times were associated with other thoughts. It was a wise liberal, the most adventurous man of his day, Paul the Apostle. So Paul was a wise liberal who said, knowledge puffeth up, but love buildeth up. Nevertheless, it is true that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the churches in this country have ever seen. As one watches them and listens to them, he remembers the remark of General Armstrong, cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. There are many opinions in the field of modern controversy concerning which I am not sure whether they are right or wrong, but there is one thing I am sure of, courtesy and kindliness and tolerance and humility are, are fairness and fairness are right. So Fosdick would have worn a little smiley face button, the yellow smiley face. That's <clears throat> Opinions may be mistaken, love never is. The second element which is needed if we were to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issues of modern Christianity and a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great deeds, needs. Excuse me. If during the war when the nations were wrestling upon the very brink of hell and at times all seemed lost, you chanced to hear two men in an altercation about some minor matter of sectarian denominationalism, could you restrain your indignation? You said, what can you do with folks like this? Who, in the face of colossal issues, play with the tiddlywinks and peccadillos of religion? So, just to be clear here, he's calling people who are concerned about certain doctrines playing with tiddlywinks and peccadillos. And he's just said that we need to be tolerant. It's not clear that this is exactly tolerant. He's telling. So anyway, so now when from this from the terrific questions of this generation, one is called away by the noise of the fundamentalist controversy. He thinks it almost forgivable that men should tithe mint and anise and cumin and quarrel over them when the world is perishing for the lack of weightier concerns, weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy and faith. The present world situation smells to heaven, and now in the process of presence of colossal problems which must be solved in Christ's name and for Christ's sake, the fundamentalists propose to drive out from the Christian churches all the consecrated souls who do not agree with their theory of inspiration. What a measurable folly. That's one of the great lines of the sermon, what a measurable folly. But it's very interesting to see that he is, Fosdick is doing what is, is a typical liberal move, which is that the world has these problems that we need to address, and doctrine just isn't as important as these concerns. And, and Machen makes, makes this point in Christianity liberalism that, that the liberal minister really is concerned with the things of this world and not with the things of the world to come. And that ultimately, the things of the world to come are really going to be much more important than solving these colossal problems facing the world. That doesn't mean those colossal problems aren't problems. It can't be addressed in some way. Whether the church is, it needs to address them is another matter. But he, may, uh, 
Fosik is giving up on those ultimate problems for proximate problems. And that's when you get into trouble, it seems to me. And that's a very important instinct of liberal Protestantism. Now, Machen, interestingly, I, I, I told you last week how Machen got in trouble with, Harry, uh, with uh, Henry Van Dyke for preaching a sermon that, uh, that forced Van Dyke to resign his pew at First, Presbyte- First Presbyterian Church, Princeton. And, and this was the sermon that sort of was a response to Fosdick's, at least in the public mind. And what's interesting about this sermon, which is reprinted in this book, God Transcendent, that uh, Ned Stonehouse edited, a collection of Machen's sermons, is that Machen also identified two conditions, identifies two conditions that are necessary for addressing the controversy in the church. And one of those, one of those positions, he argues, is exactly the same as Fosdick. He says the first condition necessary is tolerance. Um, Machen says... Um, under the former head, the f- head of tolerance, may be mentioned tolerance of religious liberty, the freedom of any citizens to hold, propagate, and teach to their children any form of religious belief that they desire. So Machen is on the side of tolerance for or religious liberty. It's just not on the side of it in the church. The church has to be intolerant. Public institutions have to be tolerant. So Machen is for tolerance in the wider society, but not within the church. And it's actually almost the reverse in the case of liberals. Liberals are often tolerant within the church, but intolerant in society because the church is basically the one upholding the good within society. Um, so Machen goes on to say the second element that's, that's necessary for a, a resolve of the, the controversies in the church is a return to old, plain old-fashioned honesty of speech. And then he goes on, Formerly when men had brought to their attention perfectly plain documents like the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession, of the New Te- uh, Westminster Confession or the New Testament, they either accepted them or else denied them. Now they no longer deny, but merely interpret. Every generation, it is said, must interpret the Bible or the Creed in its own way. But I sometimes wonder just how far this business of interpretation will go. I am, let us say, in a company of modern men. They begin to test my intelligence, and they test me on the subject of mathematics. What does six times nine make, I am asked. I breathe a sigh of relief. Many questions might place me in a very low, very low in the scale of intelligence, but that question I think I can answer. I raise my hand hopefully. I know that when I say six nines are 54, but my complacency is short-lived. My modern, my modern examiner puts on a grave look. Where have you been living, he says, six nines or 54? That is the old answer to the question. In my ignorance, I am somewhat surprised. What I say, everybody, everybody knows that. That stands in the multiplication table. Do you not accept the multiplication table? Oh, yes, says my modern friend. Of course I accept the multiplication table. But then I do not, make a stat, I do not take a static view of the multiplication table. Every generation must interpret the multiplication table in its own way. And so, of course, I accept the proposition that six nines are 54, but I interpret that to mean that six nines are 128. Machen goes on then to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Was it signed in in Philadelphia or not? And, of course, we can reinterpret that to say that, no, it wasn't signed in Philadelphia. It was signed in San Francisco. And then Machen comes to the, the point that he's driving at. His friend asks, what do you think happened after Jesus was laid in the tomb near Jerusalem about 1900 years ago? 
To that question, I have a very definite answer. I will tell you what I think happened, I say. He was laid in the tomb, and in the third day he rose again from the dead. At this point, the surprise of my modern friend reaches its height. The idea of a professor in a theological seminary actually believing that the body of a dead man really emerged from the grave. Everyone, he tells me, has abandoned that answer to the question long ago. But I say, my friend, this is a very serious That answer stands in the Apostles' Creed as well as at the center of the New Testament. Do you not accept the Apostles' Creed? Oh, yes, says my friend. Of course I accept the Apostles' Creed. Do we not say it every Sunday in church? Or if we do not say it, we sing it, of course. I accept the Apostles' Creed. But then do you not see every generation has a right to interpret the Creed in its own way? And so now, of course, we accept the proposition that on the third day he rose again from the dead. But we interpret that to mean... The third day, he did not rise again from the dead. So that was the sermon that, uh, to which Van Dyke objected. And that was a sermon widely publicized, and that was a sermon of, of Machen's that was, in many respects, a response to Fosdick's uh, sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Now, the second point in this outline, further problems from New York, is the ordination of liberals. Um, in 1892, going back to that controversy over Charles Briggs at Union Seminary, and then again in 1910 and 1916, the, the Presbyterian Church uh, determined that five doctrines were essential and necessary doctrines for ordination in the Presbyterian Church. Um, essential and necessary is a, is a phrase that goes back to the Adopting Act of 1729, in colonial Presbyterianism when the Presbyterian Church adopted the Westminster Standards as their standards and gave Presbyteries the power to test what is essential and necessary for holding the Westminster Standards. Um, And so the General Assemblies in those various years that I just mentioned affirmed the virgin birth of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the vicarious atonement, the deity of Christ, and the supernatural character of Christ's ministry as five essential and necessary doctrines. Now, in 1922, and I'm not sure if it was before or after Fosdick's sermon, the Presbytery of New York ordained two ministers who would not affirm the virgin birth of Christ. They didn't deny it, but they wouldn't affirm the virgin birth of Christ. And one of those ministers would go on to become quite famous. That This minister was Henry... Van Dusen, and Van Dusen would become the president of Union Seminary in the middle decades of the 20th century when Reinhold Niebuhr was teaching at Union Seminary, and Henry Pitt Van Dusen and Niebuhr were were sort of best buddies, and um, so anyway, it's a significant uh, figure here being ordained by the Presbytery of New York, Van Dusen, and what's also interesting about Van Dusen, just a little kind of parenthesis on his career, He was quite alarmed by secularization in America and wrote a book in 1951 called God and Education. And there are are passages in that book that would sound like Jerry Falwell in Listen, America, published in 1981, which again makes the point that liberals religiously could be quite conservative politically. Um, So there's no necessary connection between liberal theology and and politics. Um, Anyway... The Presbytery ordains these two men. So the church has before it, the Presbyterian church at large, has before it a 
difficult situation with this Presbytery of New York. You have the Fosick situation, you have these two liberal ministers uh, being ordained. So the conservatives respond with an overture from the Presbytery of Philadelphia. Remember, the Presbytery of Philadelphia was the, probably the most conservative presbytery um, in, in the denomination. And the, the minister who was responsible for this uh, overture was Clarence McCartney, uh, one of the original board members at Westminster. At the time, he was the minister at Arch Street Presbyterian Church, which is a, just a great, gorgeous Greek revival uh, uh, church downtown at 18th and Arch, um, in the shadow now, as most of Philadelphia is of the Comcast Center. But... Um, so this overture goes to the, uh, to the General Assembly and it is, is basically um, defeated um, in 1922. And uh, part of the reason for that defeat is that conservatives are by no means united on what the problems in the church are. Uh, one of the leading conservatives in the Presbyterian Church at this time is not just J. Gresham Machen, but William Jennings Bryan. Um, and I just happened to be in Omaha this week and saw... Brian's home in Nebraska, uh, Fairview, when he lived there in the late, late 19th century, into, up until his time as, as services for sec, as Secretary of State under uh, Woodrow Wilson. But Brian's concerns at this time were not Fosdick or these liberal ministers. His concerns were evolution and prohibition. He didn't want evolution taught at any of the Presbyterian colleges or schools. And even though prohibition was the law of the land, he wanted to make sure the Presbyterian ministers still didn't drink. So he's insisting on prohibition. Um, you'd think that the federal government's laws might have taken care of that. Um, so, so conservatives are not, by, by no means are they on the same page. Now, uh, even so, in 1923, uh, the Presbyterian Church does reaffirm those five points as essential and necessary. So... And they ask the, Pres the Presbyterian of New York to remedy the situation with Fosdick. Now, the, the way they remedy the situation with Fosdick is he, he gives up the pulpit at First Church in, in New York, but they say it was an administrative matter. You have a Baptist in a Presbyterian pulpit. doesn't quite work. Okay, mea culpa. But it, it, there's no real addressing of the theological problems by the Presbyterian of New York. And interestingly enough, Machen's carrying on a lot of correspondence with... Um, with cons the, the minority of conservatives up there and trying to give them pointers on, on how to proceed. And it's a very difficult thing when you're in the minority of a presbytery, what, what to do. So then the liberals respond in 1924 with the so-called Auburn Affirmation. The full title I think I have there, which is the, um, an affirmation designed to safeguard the unity and liberty of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Um, and this is really a significant document because initially, again, it was a product of New York, not just the Presbytery of New York, but the Synod of New York, which, which represented, which was the higher body of all the presbyteries within the Synod. And um, it, the reason why it has the name Auburn is because there was an Auburn Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which is where some of the professors who taught there wrote this, this uh, affirmation. And it was signed by 150 ministers initially, and then eventually uh, with 1,300 names attached to it. And this is a warning to any young men who may be pursuing the ministry to be careful of what you sign your name to, because you may have to defend what's in this document. Unfortunately, 
conservatives never really brought to trial anyone who signed this document. Um, and the reason why you might bring someone to trial is because of the couple of the excerpts I have here from this affirmation. Um, so here it says, in, in point three of the affirmation, the General Assembly of 1923, in asserting that the doctrines, contrary to the standards of the Presbyterian Church, have been preached in the pulpit of First Presbyterian Church of New York City, virtually pronounced a judgment against this church. The General Assembly did this with knowledge that the matter on which it, is, it so expressed itself was already under formal consideration in the Presbyterian of New York, as is shown by the language of its action. The General Assembly acted in the case without giving hearing to the parties concerned. Thus, the General Assembly did not conform to the procedure in such cases, cases contemplated by our Book of Discipline. And what is more serious, it, in effect, condemned a Christian minister without using the method of conference, patience, and love enjoined on us by Christ. Very interesting phrase that gets ahead of the story, but when Machen is tried for, for founding the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, that's, this is precisely what the church does to him, too. So just keep this in mind. If you can, hold up, save your outline. But this is very relevant language to what happens to Machen. And Machen was actually <coughs> in agreement with this political point of the Auburn Affirmation, at least in the sense that the General Assembly did not have the power to define what were the essential and necessary doctrines. That was a matter, matter for presbyteries to decide, not general assemblies. So in a sense, Machen did agree with part of this Auburn Affirmation. Then, but the point four is, is the big one here. The General Assembly of 23 expressed the opinion concerning five doctrinal statements that each one is an essential doctrine of the word of God and our standards. On the constitutional ground, which we have described, we are opposed to any attempt to elevate these five doctrinal statements or any of them to the position of tests for ordination or for good standing in our church. Furthermore, this opinion of the General Assembly attempts to commit our church to certain theories. I'm going to be saying, pronouncing that strangely, but anyway, I'll make the point. Theories concerning the inspiration of the Bible and the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, and the continuing life and supernatural power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are rough, they're rough uh, statements of what those five doctrines are. We hold most earnestly to these great facts and doctrines. We all believe from our hearts that the writers of the Bible were inspired by God that Jesus Christ was, was God manifest in the flesh, that God was in Christ reconciling the word, world unto himself, and through him we, him we have our redemption, that having died for our sins, he rose from the dead and is our ever-living Savior, and that, that in his earthly ministry he wrought many mighty works, and by his vicarious death and unfailing presence, he is able to save to the uttermost. Some of us regard these particular theories contained in the deliverance of the General Assembly as satisfactory explanations of these facts and doctrines. But we are united in believing that these are not the only theories allowed by the scriptures and our standards as explanation, explanations of these facts and doctrines of our religion. And that all who hold to these facts and doctrines, whatever theories they may employ to explain them, are worthy of all confidence and fellowship. Now, I'm emphasizing theory so much because they're distinguishing the facts and doctrines versus the theories. And these are not actual uh, 
ideas um, that are contained within the standards themselves. It's not as, I mean, there, there may, if you're teaching a course in historical theology, you may have certain theories about, and more generally in the Western church, but generally speaking, the standards are themselves doctrines, and then they're based on certain teachings from Scripture. So this, but the real interesting thing about this distinction between theories and then facts and doctrines is that fundamentalists in the courts of uh, State various states, especially the scope, at the Scopes trial, tried to distinguish between the facts of uh, biological life and the theory of evolution. And they were ridiculed for making this distinction because Darwinism wasn't a theory, it was fact, it was science. You can't make this distinction between fact and theory when it comes to evolution. And yet here are liberals who would have likely been making fun of fundamentalists for making this distinction between facts and theories, making, drawing that same thing, that same distinction themselves to try to exonerate their own position. So it's interesting that both sides can appeal to this fact versus theory when it's in their interest. But, you know, if, there, if it's wrong to make that distinction, it's wrong to make it in all, in all cases. So anyway, the Auburn Affirmation tries to get around these essential and necessary uh, articles by saying that they're only theories, but that, that the church can actually uh, accommodate a wide variety of theories, a wide variety of explanations for those facts and doctrines, which then leads to the showdown of 1925. And the reason why it's a showdown in part is because um, Machen had hoped and argued even Christian, Christianity and liberalism he had hoped for a separation in the church between liberals and conservatives. Um, and you can see this uh, in the chapter on the church, where he basically gives uh, liberals this advice. Finding the existing evangelical churches to be bound up to a creed which the liberal does not accept he may either unite himself with some other existing body or else found a new body to suit himself. There are, of course, certain obvious disadvantages in such a course. The abandonment of church buildings to which one is attached, the break in family traditions, the injury to sentiment of various kinds. But there is one supreme advantage which far overbalances all such disadvantages. It is the advantage of honesty. The paths of honesty in such matters may be rough and thorny, but it can be trod, and it already has been trod, for example, by the Unitarian Church. The Unitarian Church is frankly and honestly just the kind of church that the liberal preacher desires, namely a church without an authoritative Bible, without doctrinal requirements, and without a creed. So Machen was hoping for a split. That would be the easiest way out. And it looked in 1925 like a split might happen and that liberals might actually leave the church. Um, the commissioners again debated in 1925 whether the virgin birth was an essential and necessary article because the matter of New York was still before it. And member, memoir and, and, the, and the General Assembly went ahead and again affirmed the virgin birth as an essential article. And memoirs from liberals from the time suggest that they were really contemplating leaving the church, that they thought this, they, they'd come to the last straw and they would have to leave the church. And there was a talk of the whole Synod of New York even withdrawing from the Presbyterian Church. But liberals did not blink. Instead, conservatives blinked first. The moderator of the General Assembly 
was Charles Erdman. And Erdman was Machen's colleague at Princeton. So it's the Princetonians who keep getting things screwed up at the General Assembly. J. Ross Stevenson, the president in 1920, presented the plan of organic union, now Erdman. And so Erdman, instead of letting liberals leave, uh, he appointed a committee to study what was the problem in the Presbyterian Church, what was causing all this controversy. And it needs to be emphasized that Erdman was not a liberal. Erdman was a conservative, of least, at least of an evangelical stripe. His father had been one of the revivalists associated with Dwight L. Moody, sort of one of Moody's lieutenants, so he was in that kind of strand of revivalist background. He was at one of the editors of the Fundamentals, those pamphlets that came out between 1912 and 1915 or so, defending the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, Erdman wrote a biography of Dwight L. Moody, um, and he also was a premillennialist, maybe not a dispensationalist, but still he was a premillennialist. So there are a lot of indications that Erdman fit very well on the, on the conservative side of the split between liberals and conservatives, and yet he wasn't anywhere near where Machen was in, when it came time to evaluating the problems in the church. And so this commission met, and they decided to try to figure out what was, making, uh, what was causing the problems in the church. They met with leading liberals and conservatives. They met on the conservative side with both Clarence McCartney and with Machen. Uh, Machen's testimony before that commission is, is republished in this handsome little volume, or big volume as the case may be. Um, and it's interesting to see uh, what Machen identified as the, uh, the problems in the church. Um, I should also say that the liberals that this commission uh, interviewed were Henry Sloan Coffin, a prominent liberal Presbyterian in, uh, in, in New York, I think at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church, and then William Adams Brown, who taught theology at Union Seminary. But so Machen has five, notes five things going on in the church, five developments in the church uh, that, are, that are causing the controversy. The first, as you might have guessed, is the plan of organic union from 1920. The second, he mentions, is the Fosdick Sermon. Uh, the third, he mentions, is the Auburn Affirmation. The fourth, he mentioned, is the ordination of those two men who would not affirm the virgin birth. The other man, is, his name is Cedric A. Lehman, and I haven't done a search yet on Google to see where he might have turned out. And then the, uh, the last... Uh, example that Machen makes is a more generic one, and it is, and it is the attitude of the boards and agencies to the gospel, and there's no, they're not ringing a clear note for the gospel in their endeavors. So uh, Machen gives this testimony, the, the body meets, and they come out with their findings, and the findings are uh, basically to give they study what's the controversy in the church, and they basically give a thumbs up, all thumbs up to the PCUSA. Things are going really well. Um, so, among the findings, this comes in 1926, it is our deep conviction that the great body of the church, this isn't on your handout, I have the big finish there from the, the next year. It is our deep conviction that the great body of the church is sound in faith, even when that faith is tested by the strictest standards. It holds fast to its historic faith in God's relation to this universe as its creator and as the vital and unifying and governing personality who imparts to the system order, stability, and moral purpose. I'm not sure we'd refer to God as the personality. Just, anyway, 
in the true deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his true incarnation and his virgin birth and his resurrection from the dead, in his sinless holiness and the atoning sacrifice of his cross, etc. It gives a, a, a summary of the doctrine that they think the church is holding to. Secondly, it says, in these weighty Christian verities as held by the Presbyterian Church throughout its entire history, and only briefly cataloged here, we have a body of doctrine and a system of polity which binds us into a close and abiding unity, a priceless and common inheritance from the past, which vests the title of heirship in every one of us without distinction. This is a tremendous fact that must not be forgotten when we are reflecting upon our differences. In spite of wide geographical distances separating our churches and ministers, in spite of varying racial roots which reach back into the centuries and which are fed on sentiments that provoked national wars and reddened the earth with blood of historic conflicts, in spite of every extreme of difference in residence and education, in social contacts and lifelong customs, here we stand, a church with one heart beating at the center of its corporate life, bound together by the firm ties of a shining record that embraces the sacrifices and triumphs of the past and of a faith engaging the rich loyalties and abundant labors of the present. Um, there you see is basically an affirmation of multiculturalism. In it. Despite all these differences, racial, ethnic, uh, um, the church is still united. And then, and then another uh, thumbs up, it says... We believe that the church, while grateful for its inheritance, realizes how far short we come in the ideal of the New Testament. We believe that worship expressed in service is good, but we believe also that the service which is needed today must be fed from still deeper springs of devotion and faith. So if the church is going to prove it needs to have deeper devotion and faith. The recommendations it makes to the 1926 General Assembly are among the following to blame conservatives for the controversy in the church. The General Assembly, while welcoming the discussion of great theological and practical issues, lays upon the consciences of ministers and members the duty of exercising patience and forbearance and of refraining from public expression of hasty or harsh judgments of the motives of brethren whose hearts are fully known only to God. So, in effect, the General Assembly was saying that Machen's Christianity liberalism was guilty of expressing hasty and harsh judgments of people's motives. And, in fact, Machen did everything to try to avoid judging someone's motives. Um, but that's where they went, and the, the, the report basically argues for, in a way that says if conservatives don't stop criticizing liberals, they're going to get in trouble. Um, and, and then you see this... In 1927, they finished their report and basically came out with the, um, the statement I have before you on the outline. And this is what they recommend to the General Assembly. There must be a sympathetic, intelligent, and confident approach by the church to the problems of education. The education of the present generation has passed too much into the control of forces which are indifferent or hostile to the Christian faith. If Christianity were not... should true, it should be abandoned. But if it is true, as we know it to be true, and the truth without, without which the world can not, cannot live, then this truth must be carried into every field of human life, in all types of human relationships, for the righting of wrong and the achievement of good through the kingdom of God. Especially must it be brought into the lives of young men and young women, when, where they, that they may find in it, it in the guidance without which they will surely wander 
and the assured answer to their questions as to life's meaning and end. So what we need is better education, I guess, basically to go forward. There must be a more general acceptance by the church of the principle of stewardship of life and wealth and acceptance of the gospel as a trust. Never was there a clearer or more commanding call that the church advance in her organized corporate work at home and on the foreign fields. With resourceful America on one side of the globe and on the other, contemplative India and progressive Japan and seething China, it's an interesting choice of words, there flame before the faces of men the signal fires of a providential purpose. God has given our church all the equipment she requires for the fulfillment of her task with respect to that purpose. Now let her rise and go forward. We call upon the church to stand with unfaltering loyalty in the abiding truth of the gospel and with that truth in her keeping and the power of the Holy Spirit to advance in the service of our generation by the will of God. We know that such a forward movement is not a matter merely of general appeal or assembly resolution adopted at the suggestion of a commission, not by these, not by might, nor by power, but by God's spirit alone can the peace and purity and unity and progress of the church be assured. So the church is saying that doctrine... In effect, doctrine divides and ministry unites. This was a, a, a shibboleth throughout the, the Presbyterian controversy. And so the church in going forward needs to do all this great work. It needs to combine with Japan and China and India and do this great work of kingdom building all over the world. And it needs to go forward. It just can't get bogged down in these doctrinal controversies. So that's what the Special Commission does. It basically whitewash, whitewashes the Presbyterian controversy, which is why I've entitled this week The Fight Against False Optimism. The Special Commission is a very optimistic assessment of the Presbyterian Church. And um, Machen has a very different estimate of what's going on in the church. In 1926, he preached a sermon uh, called Prophets Pre- uh, False and True. It was published in a collection of sermons in 1926 called The Best Sermons of the Year, um, and it's, it's, a really, it's a really feisty sermon. It's based on uh, uh, 1 Kings 22.14, and Micah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Um, and he, so he talks about the need for giving warnings. <clears throat> and he says in the course of this sermon, I am going to venture to say a brief word in defense of pessimism. There are times when pessimism is very, a very encouraging thing. Last summer, I took a voyage down the New England coast one foggy afternoon and night. It was one of the thickest nights I have ever seen, even on those fog-bound waters. I am glad to say that the captain of each of the two boats on which I traveled was a thorough pessimist. For a time, the boat would plow along at full speed, but then, for no apparent reason, she would stop and rock quietly upon the gentle swells and then proceeded at a snail's pace. Presently, the mournful sound of a buoy would be heard, and then the buoy would come into sight. The buoys were usually exactly where the captain expected them to be, but unless he saw them, he took a thoroughly pessimistic view as to their whereabouts. The result of such pessimism was good. The sound of the foghorn was indeed lugubrious and hardly conducive to repose, but at last we got safely into Boston in the morning. There are ship captains who are less pessimistic than the captain of that boat. Such a one, for example, was the captain of the ill-fated Titanic. He hoped that all was well and kept the engines going at full speed. I am certainly not presuming to blame him. Perhaps every captain not gifted with superhuman vision 
would have been as optimistic as he. But whether excusably or not, optimistic he certainly was. And his optimism was fatal to many hundreds of human lives. The great ship plowed onward through the night, and now she lies at the bottom of the sea. Oh, that a mere weak mortal, but some true prophet of God, had been, had been upon the bridge that night. That disaster is a figure of what will come of optimism in the churches today. Superficially, our ecclesiastical life seems to be progressing as it always did. The cabins are full of comfortable passengers. The orchestra is playing a lively air. The rows of lighted windows shine cheerfully out into the night. Makes uh, boat travel sounds pretty appealing. But all the time, death is lurking beneath. In this time of deadly peril, there are leaders who say that all is well. There are leaders who decry controversy and urge peace, declaring that the church is all, is all perfectly loyal and true. God forgive them, brethren. I say it with all my heart. May God forgive them for the evil that they are doing to Christ's little ones. May the Holy Spirit open their eyes while yet there is time. Meanwhile, in the case of many of the churches, the great ship rushes onward to the risk, at least, of doom. So that, in some ways, was Machen's response, and he gets the last word here. If you want to know what the, uh, Machen's hope was like, even at this time, at the end of his testimony to the, um, to the Special Commission of 1925, after listing these various uh, ills that are besetting the church, um, he says, there are, there are not wanting hopeful signs all over the world manifesting themselves in quite independent fashion. There are movements of Christian men who are ready to face the issue and stand for Christ. These movements are despised by the world and too often by ecclesiastical leaders. But I, for my part, am convinced that they are the work of the Spirit of God. Shall our church discourage them so that they lose their continuity with the great historic content of ecclesiastical life? Or shall our church itself, in its historic grandeur, shake off its present indecision and become an agency which the Holy Spirit can use? So Machen was optimistic, but in a very different way from the Presbyterian Church in the Special Commission. And um, we are out of time, so I better close with prayer so that we can adjourn to worship. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to read more or hear more from Dr. Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you would like to hear more of our programs, including Christ the Center and the Reformed Media Review and the latest Philosophy for Theologians, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. You can also get a hold of us by emailing us at mail at reformedforum.org or sending us a voicemail at 440-97-FORUM. That's 440-973-6786. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.